The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. Today's episode of From the Archive comes from October 2022 and features a conversation between David, Mary McCord of Georgetown University, and our very own Norm Ornstein regarding the reports of Trump holding additional classified documents. The episode also features originally members-only content, so if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member. Enjoy. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, coming to you today from our nation's capital. We are pleased to be joined by Mary McCord. Mary is executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and was acting assistant attorney general for national security at the U.S. Department of Justice from 2016 to 2017. Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm great. Uh, glad to be here, David. Glad you are joining us. And Norm Ornstein is joining us again. Norm is Senior Fellow Emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, and he hosts, of course, uh, or co-hosts the Words Matter podcasts on the DSR Network. Norm, you abandoned this podcast to go do your own, but we have had you back anyway, which is a sign of our great generosity of spirit. I am so appreciative. Uh, uh, You are uh, (laughs) indeed a generous soul. What I wanted to do was to have a podcast where we talk a little bit about the fact that next week the January 6th committee resumes and talk about some of the issues that are associated with Donald Trump, the prosecution of Donald Trump, the DOJ, and the Congress. And, and of course, since we last heard from the committee, we've had this sort of intervening major story, which has to do with Donald Trump documents that he didn't return, classified documents that he didn't return. And most recently, in the New York Times today, a story suggesting that even having gone through this with requests, returning some documents, DOJ not believing it was all the documents, going and taking a look, discovering it wasn't all the documents, that some of them were classified documents, court cases trying to 
suppress what can be looked at and what can't, we now have some indication that the Department of uh, Justice still doesn't believe all the documents have been returned and that Trump is continuing to obstruct their investigation and obstruct the return of government property. And before we get to anything else, Mary, I suspect you've seen the story. How do you react to that? And how do you think a story like that, if it is true, will color the rest of the way DOJ behaves? Well, you know, the question always with each one of these new iterations of we don't think we have everything is for purposes of DOJ is always going to be, can they directly connect Trump to the failure to provide all of the classified documents to DOJ? So that's what we're already looking at when we're looking back to the first subpoena where, you know, documents were provided, a certification by a lawyer was provided that that a diligent search had been undertaken and everything that they were aware of were being provided. But of course, it wasn't everything. And as the execution of the search warrant revealed, there were more, significantly more classified documents. And so certainly Trump is on notice and has been on notice for nearly a year or more than a year that classified information should not be being stored at Mar-a-Lago and that it needs to be returned to the proper authorities, the federal government. And to my mind, he knows that and anything he doesn't return, he has been forewarned that that could be criminal and it could be not only obstruction, but it also could just be mishandling of the documents and mishandling of presidential records. But I think what what was what still remains to be seen is how much has he been directly involved in the decisions about what to turn over and what not, in the decisions about what where to look for things to be turned over. Has he kept things from those working on his behalf to search for and turn over things to the government? And that's the part that we don't know, but that's the part that DOJ will be looking at. There have been some stories about that. There have been some stories that indicated he packed boxes himself that he kept information to a very few people, that he was warned about returning these things even prior to leaving office. So we're approaching two years ago uh, in terms of that. Do you think that case that he has personal culpability here is coming together? And admittedly, these are newspaper stories. We don't have the DOJ side. Based on what we know publicly, I think there's significant evidence to, su- to support criminal charges. But not every piece has been put together. And, you, and like you say, these are, you know, assuming the, the accuracy of what's been reported, that's significant. It m- maybe doesn't go all the way there, but it's significant. I do think there's a difference between, uh, although not a huge difference, but there is a difference between his own lawyers in the White House telling him what his obligations are and the Department of Justice or the National Archivist telling him what his obligations are. And now we have both. <laughs> And so, I, you know, I do think this is what justice will be focused on. But I want to also throw a little bit of caution out there, even if the Department of Justice determines that they have evidence sufficient to prove every element of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, some crimes related to the mishandling of classified information, potentially obstruction of an official investigation, or even just mishandling of presidential records. I mean, I think they will have to think long and hard as a matter of just policy and discretion, prosecutorial prosecutorial discretion about whether they do seek the return of an indictment. And and I know different people have different views about this. I, I think accountability is very important here because the president has taken, former president has taken 
no accountability whatsoever. And in fact, you know, his defenses are constantly moving and shifting and the goalposts are moving from, oh, I declassified everything to I'm not the one who packed it to, you know, what have you, right? So if he had just simply returned documents after the first request and shut up about everything, I don't think we'd even be having this conversation. All of that said, you know, indicting a former president and prosecuting a former president carries some other things that the DOJ has to be thinking about. They have to be worried about what the reaction on the streets will be, particularly when Trump himself and his surrogates, people like Lindsey Graham and others, are out there talking about riots. This just feeds into the extremist online environment, similar to the way it fed into those who came on January 6th and attacked the Capitol. It's that same sort of incitement. And so DOJ has to be concerned about that. And they have to be concerned about what a corrupt future administration would potentially do in terms of prior, you know, invest bogus investigations into prior um, officials. So I'm not saying I think it's going to go one way or the other. I'm just saying there's more here than just whether there's evidence to prove a crime. Let me start with that, Norm. And Mary, in advance, I don't mean to phrase this in a way that is unfair to your point, but I just want to pick up on the point. Norm, do you think that the DOJ has to take into consideration the fact that Trump supporters may protest, or should they be blind to that fact? I think what Lindsey Graham and others have done is equivalent to what Vladimir Putin has done now, threatening the use of nuclear weapons as he's losing a war. It's blackmail. We cannot succumb to it. You know, I'm pained almost every day when I think of uh, the Supreme Court saying equal justice under the law. We don't have equal justice in a whole host of places. Uh, It's not equal justice for black defendants. It's uh, not equal justice when you let any individual off when there are clearly crimes that have been committed. And this is not just speculation. We have had people prosecuted for possessing single documents that should have been turned over to the National Archives. Whether they're classified or not, he had possession. I do think that the evidence is going to grow stronger in other ways. And Mary is right. We, you know, at least there is a partial defense here that he didn't know what was going on. Other people threw these things together. But we also know that his lawyer, Christina Bob, basically uh, told the Justice Department and the FBI that all the records had been turned over when they had not. We know that Alex Cannon, another one of his lawyers, not to be confused with the corrupt Judge Eileen Cannon, and I want to get to that in a minute, basically said, I'm not going to sign that because I have no confidence at all that everything has been turned over. Now, if I were a Trump lawyer fearing prosecution plus the potential loss of my livelihood over misconduct. And I got to believe that the FBI and the Justice Department are going to start to interview these lawyers now, and they can't claim attorney-client privilege when it comes to things that they themselves have done that are potentially violations of the law. We may get more evidence of what Trump knew and what Trump did. On the question of documents that have not yet been turned over, We had this tantalizing set of photos a couple of weeks ago of Trump getting on a plane going to Bedminster with 15 cartons going on the plane. Now, we have no idea what was in those cartons, 
But if I were the FBI at this point, I would certainly be thinking seriously about going to Bedminster and looking around. There are potentially many places where other documents might have been held. He spent quite a bit of time at Bedminster. If there were documents moved from Mar-a-Lago to Bedminster in an attempt to keep them from the Justice Department, the idea that you would then not indict this man who is characterized over and over by lies, uh, delays, and obfuscation, the precedent that that would set for future administrations, but also for the notion that everyone is accountable to the law, would just be devastating. Now, I want to add, David, that there are other things going on this week or in the last week or 10 days before we get to the January 6th committee. We did have what is, I think, a very lame attempt by Trump's lawyers to try and slow everything down um, by going to Clarence Thomas, who happens to be the Supreme Court justice with jurisdiction over the 11th Circuit. And Thomas gave the Justice Department a week. That's one week. Even as Trump's lawyers were saying, we want to slow that down, they wanted to expedite in the other element when it comes to Judge Cannon. And Judge Cannon, who picked the special master, Judge Deary, and then when Judge Deary was getting to the bottom of many of these questions that we've talked about, pushing the lawyers to say a lot of things about whether Trump had claimed multiple times that documents had been planted, which documents had been planted. And Cannon stopped him in a move that could only be characterized as being Trump's lawyer rather than being the judge overseeing this case. And now we're getting a challenge to whether she has any jurisdiction in the first place and had any business getting involved. This case is convoluted and difficult at one level. At another level, it's pretty clear cut. And keep in mind as well that we still have a prosecution potentially moving forward in Georgia, very possibly before the end of the year. And, uh, we're, you know, we I think we're moving from the special grand jury to the regular grand jury. There too, it seems to me under Georgia law, the evidence is is absolutely clear that Trump violated the law when he asked Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, to find him exactly the number of votes he needed to prevail. And there are others involved there, including Lindsey Graham. We're not done with potential challenges for Trump not to mention January 6th itself. Um, I was going to ask a question, Mary, but there was so much in what Norm said that you might want to respond to, both having to do with the obligation to prosecute and having to do with this series of steps taken in not just Judge Cannon's court, but then in the 11th Circuit, now up to the Supreme Court, that have an important national security component to them, uh, that perhaps you would like to respond to that? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, there's two things going on with the execution of the warrant and the ongoing investigation. There's there's obviously a criminal investigation. We've been talking about that and we've been talking about, you know, what DOJ will be thinking about as it's deciding whether to bring charges, assuming it accumulates enough evidence. But we also have a very significant national security threat. And the intelligence assessment that is ongoing right now is very important, but the fact is, we'll never really know the damage. Uh, that intelligence assessment, it's not like it's going to be finished in a month or two months, because it won't be something that we 
you know, we'll ever conclusively have answers to, you know, who might have accessed that information at Mar-a-Lago? What other classified information might Trump have shared uh, to those who are not entitled to receive it, either from the documents in Mar-a-Lago or just at, at other times? And we, we know he was incredibly loose about sharing classified information already. We, we saw instances of that, including during, you know, broadcast interviews and things where he would disclose classified information. But we also just, you know, we, we will never really, it'll be very difficult to, 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 to tie, you know, anything that may happen, for example, to any of our sources or, you know, to any of our methods, tie that back to this mishandling of classified information. But right now, the intelligence community, at least with respect to the classified information that they've been able to retrieve, has really got to assume that there could be damage here. And it's got to take precautions when it comes to reaching out to its sources who may be compromised, to tweaking different methods of intelligence collection that might be compromised, and to reaching out to our foreign partners. Their information might have been compromised. And these are really tough conversations to have. You know, hey, sorry, you know, good friend uh, trying to counter, you know, terrorist efforts, foreign terrorist organizations, extremist movements, adversarial countries, counterintelligence, good friend and partner. You know, we may have actually compromised some of the information you shared with us. That's a tough conversation. It also makes it very, very hard to recruit. You know, our intelligence community relies on Americans and non Americans to assist with its intelligence collection and oftentimes at great personal risk, particularly in foreign countries that are not, you know, don't necessarily abide by rule of the law of law the way we understand it and the way we believe in it. And, you know, they trust when they enter into an arrangement with the U.S. government that the U.S. government will do everything it can to protect them. And here we have a former president not only not doing everything that he could, but really being incredibly careless, reckless with national security information. So in many respects, I think that's almost the more important thing here, although I do believe accountability is critically important. And to go just into the various things happening among the 11th Circuit at the Supreme Court, the district court level, the special master level, I think one of the things that we should talk about a little bit is this, you know, moving the goalposts uh, that the Trump team has been doing and just changing the arguments. You'll recall when right after the search was executed, when the Trump team came in and sought the special master, it was purportedly to have a special master review all of the seized materials for privilege, for attorney-client privilege, for executive privilege. And one of the government's responses to that, I think quite understandably and quite accurately is, well, whatever whatever arguments you might have about privilege, particularly attorney-client privilege with respect to the non-classified documents, you certainly don't have that with respect to the classified documents. These are government documents. They're classified. They, by, by their very existence, can't be your own personal documents. And, and you, can't, you certainly can't have executive privilege in them if it even exists at all. And you can't have attorney-client privilege on them. And that is why they, you know, appealed uh, or asked for a stay of the special master's order with respect to the classified documents so that they could not only continue to use them in their criminal investigation, but also so that they would not have to turn those over to the special master. Now, of course, the Trump team is up in the Supreme Court saying, and I'm going to read it straight from their 
their motion, it simply cannot be an abuse of discretion for the district court to refer these matters to a special master to determine whether documents bearing classification markings are in fact classified. That's a completely different question than whether there whether there's any privileged material there. They now want, and, and you, you may recall Judge Deary, when he first got this case as special master, said, tell me now if you're claiming that anything was declassified by President Trump when he was president, because otherwise I have to assume with classification markings on them, they're classified. And, you know, it's not for me to go questioning that. They resisted that. They said, no, we should not have to make that assertion to you at this point of time in time. Yet now they're up in the Supreme Court saying the special master should determine whether these documents are classified or not. I mean, that is completely different than what they originally argued. And what does that mean? Does it mean the special master is supposed to have a hearing with the intelligence community, come in and assert whether particular information is still national defense information, the disclosure of which could cause harm to national security, including grave harm to national security. So I think that, you know, when you actually dig into the arguments, the shifting arguments that the Trump team has made since the beginning of this litigation, it's pretty apparent that there's no real legitimate legal arguments to be made. So very quickly, Mary, before I go on to the next question, picking up on something else Norm said, it does strike me as odd whether you thought those photos of boxes going to Bedminster was suspicious or not, that given some of the stories that have unfolded recently about whether or not all the documents have been shared, and given the fact that actually we have two years of people saying to Trump, you have to give these back. You're at legal jeopardy if you don't, and him not doing it repeatedly. I'm a little perplexed as to why the Justice Department didn't go visit Bedminster, didn't go back to Mar-a-Lago, didn't go to the Trump Tower, didn't, I don't know where he would go, but, you know, it just would be in other places. And you would think if we know some national security documents were missing, that the things he would be most likely to hide are national security documents. And that there would be greater urgency to find them, that time would be of an of essence. What do you think of why we, we haven't or that we have? Yeah, you know, I can't really answer that in part because we don't know what may be happening that is not public. And I don't necessarily mean that I think there's been another search, because even though the DOJ had no real intention to publicize the search of Mar-a-Lago, they obviously it was not, it was not done in the dark of night. It was in the light of day, but they didn't come in with their sirens blazing in the big blue jackets with the big yellow FBI letters on the back. They didn't call attention to it. It was Trump who called attention to it. I'm not suggesting we wouldn't know if there was a search elsewhere, but there could be other things going on to try to ascertain what the risk of there being other national defense information and classified information at other locations is. And so And there could be conversations going on as well behind the scenes. There could even potentially be some accommodations being made whereby there's access there. Again, I don't know this. It's just what we see in the public space is not necessarily everything that's happening. I want to get to the January 6th thing. I also want to ask a couple of questions about one other issue. This is the moment where we take a break and we say thank you to everybody who is in the general public who's been listening. And we say also thank you to the people who are members who will get to listen to the rest of this. If you want to listen to podcasts in full, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, sign up, be a member. You get 
33% more podcasts. That's, you know, good. And other stuff, but that's one of the good things. So hope you'll do that. And we'll be back in one moment. So we're back. Norm, I'm going to ask you one more question before we get to January 6th, just because it's on my mind listening to all this. January 6th committee sort of surfaced this issue. But in the course of the couple of months since, it seems to me that the goings-on in the Secret Service are really weird. And that, you know, the, the, the Secret Service dot, you know, records disappeared. And they seem to, some of them seem to be covering up part of a story that others were acknowledging. And we seem to have other instances of Secret Service downplaying certain kinds of information that seem kind of odd that they would downplay it. And of course, there's an implication from Pence's team that they didn't fully trust the Secret Service team. And, and you know, I just, I've talked to a lot of people at that administration who confirmed to me that this group on which you should have deep, unwavering trust had at best divided loyalties, that there was a group within it that was sort of acting on behalf of the president. And yet, no real motion on this. And I'm just wondering what you think about it, Norm. We've known for a long time that there was serious corruption and major problems inside the Secret Service. The culture was not what it should be. Carol Leonig of the Washington Post wrote a devastating book here. And we know going back, you know, trips that they took with prostitutes, with drinking, with leaving guns on the table, all kinds of things that suggested a shoddiness and lack of discipline that itself was shocking. But we also know that there was a kind of flank inside of Trump loyalists that Trump did something that was unprecedented and itself absolutely shocking, taking an active Secret Service agent and making him a deputy chief of staff inside the White House, and that that individual is still in a prominent position training new recruits into the Secret Service is itself a scandal. We also know, of course, that the Secret Service is supposed to be noted for its cybersecurity expertise, and that they allowed texts from agents to be destroyed and put in a position where they were presumably unrecoverable, all surrounding the time frame around January 6th, just smells to high heaven. But we also know now that one of the Proud Boy leaders had a call with a Secret Service person on January 6th. We don't know more about it now. We don't know if it was relatively benign. But you have to ask yourself, what would a Proud Boy be doing talking to a member of the Secret Service on the day of a violent insurrection? And were there texts? I would hope that the FBI has secured the phones and other devices of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and checked to see if any text with Secret Service people that the Secret Service may have erased show up there. And we know which Secret Service agents, the ones who were so tightly tied to Trump, would be the ones we'd want to take a careful look at. But many of them are still in place. And if you have divided loyalties as a member of the Secret Service, you shouldn't be there. 
and we should all be afraid. No doubt. And I've talked to people who worked in the Trump White House, and when some of those Secret Service agents you referred to would come by, they would stop talking because they didn't want the information. You know, they felt that was, you know, Trump inner circle and the more extreme version of the administration. Mary, the January 6th committee is going to have one more round of hearings, at least, but at, at least one next week, I guess. As we've indicated here, lots transpired since the last time we heard from them. A lot of it, by the way, I think thanks to them and the way that they opened this issue up. What would you like to see them do in this last hearing? Well, I think that you may recall that in the first hearing, the vice chair, Liz Cheney, sort of set forth this sort of seven part plan of what they were going to show and what they did show. And it went from, you know, the massive disinformation campaign to the attempts to really install an election denier into the to lead the Department of Justice, to the pressure on Vice President Pence, to the pressure on state officials to find the votes, to the fraudulent elector scheme, to Trump summoning the mob after pretty much all of his inner circle of lawyers rejected the idea of, of, the, of this fraudulent elector scheme that was being proposed by Sidney Powell and others, and to his failure to do anything about the violence for many, many hours on January 6th itself. So we've seen sort of a, a real picture, kind of, kind of chronological of how January 6th developed. I, I think that since then, well, we know that since then, they've interviewed additional people. So I think we may get additional information about any one of those parts and pieces of the plan. And we may get more, frankly, about what's happened since January 6th, because there's been a lot that's happened since January 6th, and the threat is very real. There's been, I'd say, not just a doubling down, but a tripling down on the election, the false election fraud narrative. It's a narrative that's being, you know, that has taken hold so significantly that we now have a substantial number, I think about half of the GOP who is running for election in the midterms are election deniers in many states running for positions that will have authority over election certification, election administration, et cetera. That's incredibly damaging. And even though that, you know, this is after the fact of January 6th and the House Select Committee is investigating January 6th, I think sort of the fallout from that is also important. It helps educate and inform what happened beforehand, even though it happened after. And I think it also just is important for the American public to know this didn't stop with January 6th. Same question, Norm. Well, I think, first of all, Mary is absolutely spot on. And I would just want to add what's important now about getting to the bottom of January 6th is that it was a beta test. It is, and we've seen this with almost every successful revolution where a government, a lawful government is overthrown in the past, the first coup attempt fails and they learn those lessons. And so we have to figure out not just what happened, but draw from that the experiences to make sure that we block any opportunity to do this from happening again. That's why, among other things, the Ability to reform the Electoral Count Act in an appropriate way is important. And it's why I'm a little nervous that we've got 
more than 10 Republicans in the Senate who have signed on to the Senate version, which doesn't close all of the avenues for what would be a, maybe on the surface, a semi-legal way of seizing power and overturning the results of an election. And the House bill, which came out of the January 6th committee members, is much better on that particular uh, front. I also would want to note, David, that the time, of course, is getting short here. You know, Mary is right. It actually is, 538.com has done its research. 126 Republicans running for the House with a 95% plus chance of winning, which means they're going to win, are election deniers. The election denier is a kind of shorthand for radical views overthrowing the norms of governance. And with 218 needed to make a majority, and still the likelihood that it's probably significantly greater than 50% that Republicans will have a majority in the House, they are not just going to disband the January 6th committee. They're going to investigate the members of the January 6th committee. They are going to use their power not just to impeach Joe Biden, Merrick Garland, and probably other Justice Department officials, Alejandro Mayorkas, try and cut off the funding for the Justice Department, even if we do get trials moving forward, but also to cut off funding more generally and to do whatever they can to block further investigations, much less prosecutions of Donald Trump. So this hearing next week, which may be the last public hearing, has to be followed by an intensive effort to wrap everything up by, I would hope, mid-November, giving some time to disseminate it and maybe even to introduce and possibly pass important legislation to put some safeguards around this. We are headed for a really bad time. I have a piece coming out soon about how the debt limit is very likely to be breached unless Congress in the lame duck does something to take that ridiculous issue off the table. We're going to have more than a majority of Republicans in this case happy to send us into the abyss and lead to a default. They'd like to blow everything up. The Freedom Caucus is going to be the dominant force here, and they are all in a position to do very, very bad things. So we're at a time of urgency here in terms of getting as much on the table out in the public as we can. Mary, of course, feel free to comment on that as you will. But you know, one of the things that strikes me is that we talk about the big lie in the context of presidential elections and the Electoral Count Act, for example. But if 60% of voters have an election denier on the ballot in front of them, uh, some of those election deniers are secretaries of state. Some of them are other state officials who might not be able to fiddle with a federal election or a presidential election, but could fiddle with all sorts of state elections uh, or non-presidential elections. Uh, that in turn could further institutionalize minority rule or make, uh, you know, disenfranchise uh, different groups of people. 
And, I, and I'm wondering if we're viewing this as as pervasive and as multi-layered a problem as it really is. In certain circles, we we are, but you know, I don't know that the American people have has a real appreciation of where these things are going. And you know, sometimes it's a real toss-up about when you talk more about it, does it just give more for free publicity, those who are pushing these movements? And should you talk less about it? And I deal with this push-pull every single day because I, I do talk about these things. But just to to get straight to your question. There is an actual strategy of ex- of extremism right now that is a decentralized, localized strategy. The extremist platform Gab this spring in May hosted that strategy. It's capture your county, then a few of them, then capture your state. What we need is a decentralized, localized Christian political movement. And that is what we're seeing, right? We've seen across the country, we've seen threats and intimidation against election officials, elected officials, people running for elections, school board members, teachers, librarians, public health officials, county board officials at that very localized level. Those people fleeing their jobs and in many cases being replaced by election deniers and people who hold other other types of extremist and anti-government and insurrectionist views. That's percolating into this election denial these races by election deniers, and those people will be in positions, like you say, secretary of state, or will, if they win, secretaries of state, governors, but also local election officials, right? At every stage, having responsibility for canvassing the ballots, certifying the votes in state elections, but in also federal elections. And I think the other thing we need to think about is we're also talking about people running for the state legislature. We're talking about a time when the independent state legislature doctrine is actually going to be heard by the Supreme Court in a case this fall, Moore v. Harper. This is a case, a redistricting case, which is challenging the ability of a state Supreme Court to determine the constitutionality under the state constitution of a redistricting map drawn by the state legislature, challenging the state court's authority to do that on the argument that under the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution, the state legislature has plenary authority to determine the manner of choosing senators and representatives, manner being read to include redistricting. Now, let's just think about that in light of the question you posed, in light of, assume we are, are, were to get a whole bunch of election deniers holding state legislative offices and assume that the Supreme Court were to adopt this broad view of the independent state legislature doctrine, you can see where this is going. You could then see, you know, the dominant party in many states being wholly responsible with with only minimal accountability, and that accountability is Congress can come in and overrule this, or if it violates federal constitution, then the federal courts can overrule, but otherwise the state legislatures would really have carte blanche to draw districting lines however they see fit, even if they completely cut out portions of the population on on partisan grounds. So all of these things are happening at once. And a an expansive view of the end of the elections clause, which gives state legislatures the power to to determine the times, places, and manner of choosing Congress members, federal Congress members, 
There's also the electors clause, which gives state legislators the power to determine the matter, the matter of choosing electors. And by electors, I mean presidential electors. So it would actually be you don't even need a an expansive view of independent state legislature theory for that clause to be used for a state legislator to decide, you know what, we're not going to choose electors by popular vote anymore. We're going to just choose them ourselves. Now, I think they need to do that before an election or not after election, or I think they would be in violation of the U.S. Constitution's due process clause. But there's nothing that would stop a legislature who wanted to do this from saying, to heck with the popular vote. We're just going to go back to the way it was right after the founding notwithstanding that for 200 years there's been popular vote has determined the electors, we're just going to choose them ourselves. So we have a confluence of a whole lot of things going on here that are very, very anti-democratic, that are really not at all consistent with what the founders, I think, you know, were expecting or would have expected. And, you know, I'm not sure everybody understands how these, all of these people, pieces of the puzzle fit together. One part of it is actually, Mary, they don't even have to do this before the election. If this doctrine held, the state legislature could say, we don't believe those results of the popular vote. We're going to tell you what the actual results of the popular vote were, and we'll choose the electors on that basis. But if the Supreme Court adopts this doctrine, which says that because the elections clause says that state legislatures determine the time and replace of federal elections, there's no role for the courts, then Congress can come back and say, Well, the Constitution actually says unless Congress sets the law, and then the Supreme Court has no role to play. Therefore, every action you've taken on the Voting Rights Act or any election matters, Shelby County, Citizens United and the like, are null and void because we pass laws and you have no role to play in determining their constitutionality. Now, whether Congress would do that, I don't know, but let's face it. We're heading towards potential confrontations by a Supreme Court that, if you heard the arguments this week in a case involving redistricting in Alabama, and you heard Katanji Brown Jackson give these originalists a schooling in the meaning of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, what we know is that we have at least five justices and probably six who don't care what the law, the history, the Constitution is, they're going to rule in a partisan fashion. And that is even more frightening. The Supreme Court is on the verge of losing all legitimacy. And we're headed down a road of very, very dangerous things at all levels, local, state, and otherwise. Keep in mind that not only do we have 126 likely members of the House at minimum who are election deniers. There are over 35 official Republican candidates for not just governor and secretary of state, but state attorneys general, chief law enforcement officials in these states who are themselves election deniers. Some of them will win. That's not good. No, it's it's not good. Very, very chilling analysis from both of you. Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you very much. Norm, thank you everybody for listening. Clearly, these are issues that we've got to follow and scrutinize. And each of you out listening need to follow and discuss and recognize you you can play a part in how these things turn out in the upcoming election. Uh, and you need to do that because the risks are, as have been described here, very high. 
and things like, you know, the Mar-a-Lago case or the January 6th committee are not remote. They tie directly to your lives. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye.